Hello and welcome to Seeing Red. I'm your host Mark, or no doubt if Bethan was here, she'd probably be calling me your hostess. Um, Thanks for joining me once again. You've probably noticed that whilst Bethan's taking a bit of time off with baby Bella, episodes are coming out on a fortnightly basis as opposed to our usual weekly. We will of course be back to weekly episodes when Bethan is back in the fold in a few weeks time. Um, But until then I just wanted to thank you really for your patience and understanding. Thanks also go to our new Patreon supporters. We have Susie Hobday, Melissa Anderson and Dominic Bork. Um, Thank you so much, guys. Every time somebody signs up to support the show through Patreon, it literally blows me and Bethan away. So um, your support is most welcome and we are so grateful for it. If you don't currently support the show on Patreon, that's absolutely fine. We're never going to charge you to listen to it. Um, We do it genuinely because we love doing it. But if you would like to chuck a little bit of money our way, um, then you can head over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. Um, For those of you that don't know much about Patreon... Basically, it's an American website that allows people from any country, so from all over the world, to financially support their favourite show creators. So it's almost a bit like kind of chucking a tip our way. And in return for your general support, you'll get a little bit of Seeing Red merchandise, you get access to bonus episodes, we've got signed scripts, we have competitions. It's a real community going on over there. So if you don't support us there, uh, please do have a think about heading over and, and checking out our page. And on the subject of competitions, we recently announced the winners of our September Patreon competition. Congratulations go to Erica D and Joanne L, who each win a signed copy of leading criminologist Professor David Wilson's latest book, My Life with Murderers. Um, It's a great book. I've read it. I can absolutely recommend it. It's available in all good bookshops and online at the usual place or places. We have just launched our October Patreon competition as well. Uh, If you want details of that, you can head over to our Patreon page. I keep saying that, I'm sorry. We'll also put details on all of the social media. So uh, there's a really exciting prize. Me and Bethan have been working on that for some time. So please do check that out. Right, showtime. It's Saturday the 15th of February in 1997. The Jenkins family, made up of Mum, Lois, Dad, Sean and their five children, including 13-year-old foster daughter Billy Joe, are waking up in the six-bedroom house they share in the seaside town of Hastings in East Sussex. The five girls, all of school age, are racing around the house getting ready for a busy day of shopping, music and chores. It's your typical Saturday morning in middle-class suburbia, but this is not going to be your typical Saturday. In a matter of hours, one of the five girls, Billy Jo, will lie dead in a pool of blood on the patio, having been struck around the head ten times. Suspicion will soon turn to foster dad Sean, and this seemingly respectable family will be ripped apart at the seams. Billy Jo was born in 1983 in East London. Her early upbringing was about as far removed from the Jenkins family as you can get. Her father was imprisoned before she started school and her mother, who struggled to cope, turned to alcohol. She too spent time in prison during Billy Joe's early years, resulting in the little girl and her two younger siblings being sent to live with various members of the family at different times in their lives. As a young girl, Billy Joe was feisty and at times she could be aggressive and even violent. But then again, she had to be. Up until the age of nine, she had essentially brought herself and her younger siblings up. She was far more advanced than her school friends, 
able to cook, clean and do the washing. Hers, thankfully, was a childhood most of us can only imagine. A life on the fringes of society where the parent-child roles have been reversed and love and affection have been replaced with neglect and contempt. As Billy Joe's mother's life descended deeper and deeper into a chaotic vortex of alcoholism, the Jenkins family stepped in to help. Sean, a respected deputy head teacher, and Lois, a social worker, answered an advert looking for a foster family for Billy Joe. To them, this was a no-brainer. They knew the girl already, she went to the same school as their daughters, and they felt they could actually offer her a stable family home. And so, within a matter of weeks, Billy Joe had moved into the Jenkins family home. This was 1992. Fast forward five years and Billy Joe's life had completely turned around. She was as much a part of the family now as the Jenkins' four daughters and was well behaved and making good progress at school. To the outside world, it appeared as though this church-going family were a solid example of good Christian values. But, as we know all too well on this show, what goes on behind closed doors isn't always what people present to the outside world and the Jenkins family harboured some dark and disturbing secrets. So, back to that Saturday in February 1997. The house is buzzing with the activity of five noisy girls. Billy Jo has seen some trainers she wants and is begging Sean for the money to buy them. Sean agrees to pay, provided Billy Jo completes some odd jobs around the house. She is to clear out an old garden shed and paint the patio door frame. Billy Jo gets started on her chores. She knows that once she has completed these jobs, Sean will allow her to go into town and buy the trainers that she so longs for. Lois decides to take two of the girls, Esther and Maya, into town. As she leaves the house, she says what will be her last goodbye to Billy Jo, a girl she has grown to love as if she were her own flesh and blood. The remaining two Jenkins girls, Annie and Charlotte, or Lottie to her friends, also have plans that day. Annie has decided to join Billy Joe in earning some extra pocket money. While Billy Joe works outside, Annie sets to work cleaning and tidying the house. Charlotte has a clarinet lesson and Sean is tasked with dropping her off and picking her up. So far so normal, although to be fair it does sound like a bit of a nightmare to me. Having to organise all of those children, keeping them occupied, having to buy them trainers with my own money. Anyway, so as Billy Joe clears out the shed, she notices a number of large metal tent spikes. These are heavy duty tent spikes, the sort that would keep a marquee in place. So I think they're about 18 inches long, they weigh a couple of pounds. Putting them to one side, she continues with her chores while Annie, who has now finished cleaning the house, starts washing the car. When the time comes for Sean to pick younger sister Charlotte up from a clarinet lesson, Annie decides to go with her dad while Billy Joe opts to stay at home and finish the painting. She's nearly finished now and time is running out, it's February and there isn't many hours of daylight left. She wants to get the job done so that she can head into town and get those all-important trainers before the shops close. When Sean returns to the family home with Charlotte and Annie, the trio barely make it inside before Sean realises that they've run out of white spirit. Now, we'll come back to this later, but let's just say at this point, Sean, Charlotte and Annie remain in the house for an undisclosed period of time before getting back in the car and heading to the DIY store to get the white spirit. The Jenkins live on a busy road opposite a park and Sean would later claim that he always set off in the direction in which the car was already facing. 
This is important if a little boring, but the DIY store can be reached by turning left out of the Jenkins home and then right onto the main road. As the car is facing right, Sean sets off in that direction, necessitating a long and laborious drive around the park to reach the main road where the DIY store is located. A bit weird, I think you'll agree, but then again, I do know people that have turned left three times to avoid turning right, so I kind of understand it, but it does get weirder. Sean now circles the park twice, almost like he is deliberately wasting time. Again, we'll come back to this later. When he arrives at the hardware store, he realises he has no money with him, so he, Charlotte and Annie get back in the car and head home. When they arrive back at the house, the girls discover Billy Joe lying in a pool of blood on the patio. Her head has been caved in so brutally that part of her brain is now exposed. Lying next to her is one of the tent spikes she'd found earlier. The metal spike is covered in blood and has traces of bone, hair and brain matter on it. Sean calls his neighbour Denise, who arrives and comforts the girls. Denise goes back and forth between the girls and Billy Joe and attempts to stem the flow of blood from her head with a scarf. As she does this, she notices something inside Billy Joe's left nostril, a sort of dirty material. It's wedged all the way up her nose, but part of it is hanging down towards her lip. At this point, Denise doesn't know that Billy Joe is actually dead, so in a state of absolute panic, she pulls the material from Billy Joe's nose, fearing it's hampering her breathing. What comes out is a large piece of black plastic bag. Again, hold that thought, we will come back to that. At this point, Sean calls the emergency services and puts on his best deputy headmaster voice as he orders an ambulance. Operator. Thank you, go ahead, caller. Where do you need the ambulance? Sean. 48 Lower Park Road, Hastings, and it is an emergency. Operator. And what's happened there? Sean, I don't know, my daughter's fallen or she's got head injuries, there's blood everywhere. Operator, what, she's banged her head and bleeding from the head? Sean, yes, well, I I don't know, there is blood everywhere on her head, she's lying on the floor. The operator goes on to explain that Sean must put Billy Joe in the recovery position. He ignores this advice, instead opting to end the call before heading out to his car at the front of the house. The car is a vintage convertible and has its roof down. Sean gets into the car and manually pulls the roof up just as the ambulance arrives. Meanwhile, in the centre of Hastings, Lois is looking around the shops when her mobile phone rings. It's Sean. She answers and is shocked when he tells her to come home at once, saying coldly, Something has happened to Billy Joe. Lois races from the shop, feeling an increased sense of panic as she heads home on autopilot. As she walks up the front steps to the house, she sees a policeman and knows instinctively that someone has died. Describing the moment she walked into the house and laid eyes on her husband, she would say years later when giving a newspaper interview, quote, His eyes were as grey as slate with pinpoint pupils. He tried to hug me but it was icy and completely without feeling. He too was in shock. At some point I was told that Billy Joe had died, although I already knew. I collapsed backwards into a chair. The house was filled with police, some in uniform, some in plain clothes and some in white forensic suits. The family home Lois had lived in for years, where they had moved to following a job offer Sean couldn't refuse, where they had raised their five daughters was no longer familiar to her. This was like watching a scene in a TV drama. The family was escorted to a friend's house and it was there that Sean broke the news to the girls. 
Reflecting on this moment in an interview with the Daily Mail years later, Lois recalled, One of them screamed. We all cried. This moment of utter grief lasted for what seemed like hours. She went on to say, I can't recall Sean during these harrowing hours. In a funny way, it was as if he wasn't there. He offered no comfort. I felt let down. All I can recall with clarity is the look in his eyes as he told the children, Bill is dead. It had no trace of emotion. I took it to be his expression of shock. Later that night, in the early hours of the following morning, as Lois lay in bed physically and emotionally drained from the events of that day, she slept fitfully. Her head was filled with unanswered questions. Just who had killed Billy Joe and why? As Lois wrestled with her thoughts, she felt an overriding sense of guilt. This was a girl she had taken into her home. A girl who had suffered years of neglect, but who she and Sean had promised to protect and nurture. A girl who, with the love and support of a solid family unit, could start over again, maybe even one day realising her dreams of becoming a famous singer or actress. That was never going to happen now. As Lois churned these thoughts over in her head, Billy Joe's lifeless body lay in a mortuary. In just 13 years, this poor girl had been through enough hardship to last a lifetime, and now that short life was over, just as it was really beginning, and Lois felt responsible. Lois went through the harrowing ordeal of having to identify Billy Joe's body in the days that followed, and she also made a televised appeal with Sean to help catch the killer. And it was just hours after making that public appeal for information that Lois started to have her first doubts about Sean. In her interview with the Daily Mail, she said, I woke up as he turned over in bed and it dawned on me that it could have been him. I lay there terrified thinking it must have been him and if it wasn't him, it could at least have been him. She went on to say, The following morning I felt terribly guilty. But later that day a friend asked me to go out for a drink and told me that she had also felt it could have been Sean. What neither of us knew at this time was that a forensic scientist was examining Sean's clothes and in the process of discovering minute spots of blood. Lois continued, A few days later I got up with the children and while Sean was asleep in bed, I looked out of the window to find the house was surrounded by police. There was a knock at the door and a policewoman asked to see Sean. He dressed, came downstairs and was told that he was under arrest for murdering Billy Joe. I hoped the worst wasn't true. I wanted someone to pop out of the woodwork and say it was me, but no one came forward. Sean was taken into custody and questioned over a number of days, during which time he repeatedly changed his account of his movements on returning from picking up Charlotte from that clarinet lesson. At first he said he didn't enter the house, later he said he did enter the house and had waited in the hall. Then he told police he'd gone into the kitchen. Officers believed he was lying to distance himself from the murderer to provide himself with an alibi for the time that Billy Joe was supposedly murdered. As they digged deeper into Sean's history, they uncovered a man who was adept at lying. Officers found Sean's CV in which he claimed he had attended the University of Kent. But that information was false. He had grossly exaggerated his past experiences and fabricated jobs and schools he had supposedly worked for in order to get the job as deputy head teacher at the school he was working at at the time of the murder. Charlotte and Annie were interviewed and confirmed that when they arrived back at the house, having picked up Charlotte from that clarinet lesson, 
Sean had been inside on his own for a couple of minutes as they waited by the car for him before making their way to the DIY store. This would have been enough time for Sean to attack Billy Joe. Now, when Sean's jacket was forensically examined, scientists found 150 minute particles of Billy Joe's blood and the pattern of droplets of blood suggested that it had come from a spray of blood rather than a splatter of blood, meaning it was highly likely that Sean was close to Billy Joe as she was struck with the tent pole. When questioned as to why he drove twice around the park before going on to the DIY store, Sean came up with a convoluted story. He said he had no choice but to drive in that direction as he lived on a busy road and could not execute a three-point turn safely. As to why he drove around the park twice, he said on the first lap he had decided that it was too late for the painting to continue, so there was no point in buying the white spirit. The trip was abandoned and they would head home. However, when he told Annie of this, she got upset. She protested that she wanted to help Billy Joe finish the paint job that afternoon. Sean said he felt bad and relented, abandoning his plans to come home, instead driving straight past the house once again, around the park and onto the DIY store. Now, I'm not sure what the girls said in corroboration of this or whether they were influenced by Sean in the days following Billy Joe's murder, but detectives were very concerned with Sean's explanation and whether the girls actually had been influenced by him. Um, So yeah, it was very much debatable in terms of his excuse for driving around the park twice, even if the girls had said, yep, this happened, I wanted to help with the painting and he felt bad, so he said, no, actually, we'll go to the store. Um, We can't really take that at face value. These are young girls, one of them was eight. Officers believed Sean had deliberately sat in his car after discovering Billy Joe's lifeless body so he could later explain away the presence of her blood on the driver's side of the vehicle. If he hadn't sat in the car after discovering his foster daughter's body but officers had later found traces of her blood there, how would he have been able to explain this away? It would have proven Billy Joe was dead and that he had come into contact with a body before he left for the hardware store, thus undermining his alibi. He needed officers to believe that she was killed when he was out at the DIY store. When officers questioned Lois, she told them of Sean's violent side. She described him as a violent man, a strict disciplinarian who beat his children with a stick and a slipper, a man who had beaten her, inflicting serious injury. She said, quote, We never argued he didn't shout. He would just lose it, snap, and within a few minutes he would be back to normal. She described him as a very volatile man and I think her description of him actually is all the more disturbing with the pretext about him and her never arguing. She paints a picture essentially of a psychopath, a man who does not behave like a normal person, someone who is just silently and quickly capable of losing it and then immediately returning back to normal as if nothing had happened. Police were happy they had their man and Sean Jenkins was officially charged with the murder of Billy Joe. During his trial, Denise, the neighbour Sean had called after discovering Billy Joe's lifeless body, testified that he delayed calling an ambulance and didn't follow the advice of the emergency services operator when he was told to put Billy Joe in the recovery position. It wasn't all bad news at his trial, however. Two witnesses came forward saying they had seen a man sat on a bench in the park opposite the Jenkins house around the time of the murder. The man, identified in court as Mr B, was said to have been acting suspiciously and jurors were told that he had been questioned at the time and was clearly suffering from a mental illness. 
Importantly, he was also said to have had a plastic bag fetish. Don't forget, it was part of a plastic bag that was found inside Billy Joe's left nostril. Was this his trademark, a kind of calling card? Actually, no. Unfortunately for Sean, he had a solid alibi, and so this witness testimony was considerably undermined. Sean was found guilty in July 1998, and he immediately launched an appeal. However, this was unsuccessful. Undeterred, he launched a further appeal in 2004. A significant piece of evidence presented to the jury in his original trial was the blood spray on his jacket, which meant that he must have been present when Billy Joe had been struck around the head with a metal tent spike. But new forensic experts came forward saying a dying or dead person could expel microscopic droplets of blood when moved or supported. This is known as the blood aerosol theory, and this suggested that Sean could have been sprayed with Billy Joe's blood when he was tending to her, which he did do initially upon discovering her body. This new evidence was enough to overturn Sean's original conviction, and it resulted in him being released on bail while he awaited a retrial which took place in October 2005. After 39 hours of deliberation, the jury in this trial were unable to reach a verdict. And in February the following year, when the same thing happened at his second retrial and now third trial for the murder of Billy Joe, Sean was declared in consequence not guilty. And this legal term is really important. It's almost saying that he was found not guilty on a technicality. The CPS are not saying he's not guilty, just that they have no choice but to declare him not guilty as they're unwilling to submit the case for a third retrial and essentially the fourth trial. By this time, an estimated £10 million of taxpayers' money had been spent on attempting to bring Sean to justice, and there was just no more money left in the kitty. And this does remind me of Barry George, the man who was tried for the murder of Jill Dando. He was found guilty and sent to prison, later being declared not guilty at a retrial. And in both cases, importantly, the CPS refused applications for compensation, which I think is very telling. Although I must say at this point, I say all that, I really, really think that Barry George is innocent of Jill Dando's murder. I think... I still attest to the fact that she was murdered either by Serbian gangsters or somebody at the BBC. I think the BBC theory is a bit far-fetched. If you want to know our thoughts on that case, then head over to Season 1, Episode 4. Um, horrific sound quality and a very early episode in our podcast journey. Um, but I think it's a really interesting case, so um, do, do check that out. But don't shout at us for the appalling sound quality. Anyway, nine years after the murder of Billy Joe, Sean Jenkins was a free man. The testimony of his wife in relation to the abuse she and her children suffered at his hands had not been admissible in court and only came out in 2006 after his retrial. By this time, she had long been divorced from Sean and had relocated her entire family to Tasmania in Australia. Sean continues to maintain his innocence and he has since written a book entitled The Murder of Billy Joe. So what do I think happened? Well, to be honest, I I find this a bit of a difficult one. You know, this guy's arrogant, cold um, and well, just a bit of a dick, to be honest. But, you know, whilst coming across as your typical deputy head teacher um, and having a God complex, 
that doesn't necessarily mean that he's capable of murder. And I do sit on the fence a little bit with this one. There is a part of me that genuinely believes he might not be responsible. This cold-blooded killing was committed on impulse, and while Sean's wife said he was volatile, it is a big leap to go from slapping your wife and kids about to striking one of them about the head ten times with an 18-inch metal spike. I mean, seriously, what must have Billy Joe done to provoke him into that? I think it is extremely unlikely that someone could commit such a brutal attack like this as a one-off. If he is capable of murder or of being provoked, getting angry and reacting like this, then why hasn't he done it before or since? Or maybe he has. I would imagine it's not something you can put a lid on though. It's either there or it isn't. And fortunately for the vast majority of us, it isn't. I do think he acted suspiciously though. I think if he did kill Billy Joe, there must have been a real motive there. Not just someone reacting in the moment. Um, Perhaps Billy Joe was being sexually abused and was about to blow the whistle. Did she have to be silenced at any cost? If Sean did kill her, then I believe he did this before he picked Charlotte up from that clarinet lesson. So I'm going to take you back in time. We're back in Hastings on that fateful Saturday. Lois is out shopping with Esther and Maya. Charlotte is at a clarinet lesson. The only people in this large house are Billy Joe, Annie and Sean. Billy Joe is in the back garden painting the patio door frame. Annie is at the other end of the house, out front washing the car. Sean presumably is inside the house. Perhaps he confronts Billy Joe whilst Annie is out washing the car. Maybe he goes outside, Billy Joe says something that makes him see red. He grabs the nearest thing to him, a heavy tent spike, and bludgeons her with it in a fit of rage. Maybe he is covered in blood, rushes inside, puts his clothes in the wash and changes as he flits back into normal mode. Perhaps he puts his jacket back on and tells Annie he's going to pick up Charlotte. She asks to go with him and he lets her. He picks up Charlotte, the trio arrive back at the house and in a moment of panic he can't quite face the inevitable. His daughter's finding the body of their beloved sister. So he tells them they must go out at once and drives around the block a couple of times, trying to collect his thoughts. He heads to the hardware store but knows he has to face the consequences of his actions at some point, and so he turns around and gathers himself on the journey home. Sean, Charlotte and Annie arrive back at the house, and the rest is history. A difficult one, I think, as I said at the beginning. I very much do sit on the fence, but I'm kind of only a bit on the fence. I think that um, he probably did commit Billy Joe's murder. Um, Interestingly, I can't remember her name, but somebody did get in touch with us um, on Instagram, I think, sent us a DM, so thank you for that. And they said they did live very close to... um, to the home where Billy Joe was murdered and they would go past that house daily on the bus at that kind of time um it was quite a busy area so it's extremely unlikely that somebody could enter a property and find Billy Joe and kill her uh, you know all within the space of 10 minutes which is what Sean Jenkins is asking everybody to believe so I think he probably did do it but I would be really really interested as to the motive I think it's as I said not just a case of somebody just flipping out and seeing red and reacting in the moment I think there must have been something more to it and I would love to know Um, unfortunately we probably never will know 
As always, I would be really interested to know what you think happened on that cold February afternoon in picturesque Hastings. You can get in touch in all the usual ways. We're on all of the usual socials. Uh, We've got nearly 500 members on our closed Facebook group now. When we hit our 500th member, that person, number 500, will get a signed copy of one of true crime expert Chris Clark's books. So please hunt us out on Facebook and join the group if you haven't done so already. We've had some really interesting discussions over there and there's also a lot of banter as well. Um, So what are you waiting for? Go check it out. I think there are 488 of you there at the moment. So um, only 12 more, the the kind of 12th more person will get the book. Um, As I said at the top of the show, if you haven't checked us out on Patreon, please do have a look and really think about supporting the show in this way for as little as $3 a month. There's no minimum commitment. So until next time, we'll see you then. Bye. How does the offer of free beer sound to you? As a loyal listener of the show, we'd like to reward you with just that. Free beer. Courtesy of our friends at beer52.com, you have the opportunity to sip eight free exclusive craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com forward slash seeing red and cover just £4.95 for the postage. As an added bonus for Seeing Red listeners, sign up within the next two weeks and get two extra free beers. So that's a total of 10 free beers. Beer 52 traversed the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the greatest small batch breweries planet Earth has to offer. Each month they deliver a case with a different theme. Themes have ranged from Germany to Korea, Norway to South Africa and even California to Finland, but they haven't forgotten their roots. As an independent UK company, Beer 52 are also passionate about the craft beer scene. And the beauty of Beer 52 is they don't hold you to ransom. There's no lock-in and you can leave any time. I've been a customer for 12 months now and let me tell you, there is no better feeling than arriving home from work to a fresh delivery from Beer 52. Your first box will be sent to you next day and will contain beer from all over Europe. You'll also get the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment, and if that wasn't good enough, they also throw in a tasty snack. Just go to www.beer52.com forward slash seeing red to get your first case of eight beers for free. And don't forget, sign up in the next two weeks and get an extra two unmissable beers free. That's www.beer52.com forward slash seeing red. That's the word beer, then the numbers five, two, dot com.